Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 44th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Dave Balter, co-founder and CEO of Flipside Crypto. Dave is a serial entrepreneur, having founded two companies in the Boston tech scene that have been acquired. Buzz Agent was acquired by Dunhumby, and then Smarter was acquired by Pluralsight, a company that went public back in May of this year. And Pluralsight has been aggressively growing their team in Boston. His current company, Flipside Crypto, is a venture-backed startup that is providing indexes and investment vehicles for cryptocurrencies. So not only has Dave's impact been felt as an entrepreneur, but he's also a very active investor and advocate for the Boston tech scene. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like the legendary Dave Balter tech prom. Yes, that is something that did happen. The details behind Buzz Agent, plus a fun story involving Jason Calacanis. Smarter's pivot that led to an acquisition. A simple description on cryptocurrency and blockchain, plus what Flipside Crypto is up to and how they're helping people build a diversified portfolio. How he got into angel investing, including being one of the first investors in at RunKeeper, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. As you may have heard, VentureFizz recently expanded to New York City, which is really, really exciting. If you are interested in staying connected to what's happening in NYC tech, you can toggle between cities on VentureFizz to get everything you need to know about each tech ecosystem. This includes jobs, biz pages, stories, and events. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Dave. Dave, thanks for joining us. Oh, no problem. Glad to be here. All right, Dave. So um, for the historians of the Boston tech scene, you might remember this, but you if you don't remember this era, there was something going way back called the Dave Balter Tech Prom, which was this amazing party. It had your name attached to it. Um, can you tell people what that was and when is it coming back? Because there was supposed to be like more editions of this and what happened? Uh, well, the story of the tech problem is a pretty good one. Um, I, I ran into a woman by the name of Sarah Hodges in, uh, I don't know, I can't remember, October 2010 or maybe before I can't remember. And she and a bunch of other kids, I will say straight, straightforwardly, <laughs> youngins, were talking about holding a tech prom. And um, I had I just sold Buzz Agent and uh, Court Johnson uh, turned to me and said, um, you should sponsor it. And I said, in being a little bit of a wise ass, uh, yeah, I only sponsor things with my name on it. <laughs> and, then, and then I proceeded to forget I ever said it and left the kids to go hang out. And I went home. And the next morning, uh, Scott Kirstner from the Boston Globe called and said to me, what's with the Dave Balter tech prom? And I'm like, what? I don't, I don't know <laughs> what, what is that? About. Yeah. And it turns out that Sarah and a few other people had gone and built a website and a bunch of other stuff. So we... Uh, I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, we formed a small committee. It was myself, uh, Mike Toronto, uh, Court, Jen Lum, and Sarah. Mm -hmm. And we raised $85,000 from local sponsors. And uh, two months later, threw just an all-out rager. Uh, open bar party uh, for 650 people. And uh, it was crazy. So it was unintentional, but it really sparked the sort of I think it, it actually represented quite well the entrepreneurial spirit of Boston at the time. Just people wanted to get together and 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 um, celebrate. Uh, we had one more. Um, I think the first. I'm going to forget all the dates, but the first mm -hmm. maybe was in 2011 or 2012. Yep. So my dates are off. But um, we did one more in 2013. 
uh, a smaller one, about 250 people. And then we said, you know, it's happened. We're, okay. we've, done, we've done what we're going to do. Now we have lots of other types of parties, but that was, that was the end of the tech proms. But I do think that Boston needs this kind of like it's massive gathering party. I think there was a bunch of that for a stretch and then, you know, it kind of went away and, and that was because that whole generation brought this new like life to it. So there needs to be a, a next generation of that happening. I totally agree. And actually we, I, you know, speaking of Mike Triano, we talk about, we, we talk about a bit. I do remember during that phase um, being in, I think it was Lolita with Mike and Mike's, Mike's, I think, a couple of years older than me, not too too much older. But I remember turning to him and saying, like, we're looking around the room. There's all these entrepreneurs and and investors. They're all like together. And I'm like, do you is it all has it always been like this? I remember saying to him and he was like, no, this is it was 2012. This is just a really weird, interesting, amazing era. Mm -hmm. And we now often talk about like we don't see that as much in Boston. And there's two reasons for it. Um, one is we're either too old to know that it, that it's actually happening. Right, that it is, is happening. That is the one right. that's probably likely. Like, there's probably a whole crew who's <laughs> like, "What are you guys talking about? You guys are old." Um, <laughs> the other is, which I think is really interesting, is a lot of the people from that era have moved on in and are building companies. You know, yeah. they're, they're sure. you know, I think of you know, uh, yeah, Ports on his what company now? Like third or so? I mean, I, I know he's done exactly. And so, much. so people got to work. Yeah. So we kind of like that, though, like the idea that that, you know, maybe there's a little less of the like fanfare mm -hmm. and more of the there's a lot of people building really good companies here. And, yeah, they celebrate less or differently, but it's still a pretty good thing. Well, let's go back. So where'd you grow up? And, uh, you know, ultimately you went to Skidmore with a psychology degree. So how how did bring us up to speed on your early foundation years? Yeah, uh, yeah, not too, not 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 that interesting for the for maybe the rest of the world. But grew up in Weston, so just outside the city here. Um, uh, it was a dry town. I remember that. So no, no. <laughs> so was, we went to Cat Rock on the on the weekends, um, which was basically we'd all go to a rock in town and hide from our parents. So that's what we do. Got it. Uh, went to Skidmore. Yep, studied psychology. Um, uh, post uh, Skidmore you know, really didn't, had no direction, frankly, at all. I thought I wanted to write for a while. I ended up doing stats for a direct marketing firm, a catalog firm. Um, that's where I sort of learned the art of marketing and segmentation and, and you know, how customers behave. Uh, worked for a, a, a firm called Kessler Financial here in town for a while. Great company, Affinity Marketing. So got some more marketing chops there. And then literally probably had like a 25 year old midlife crisis uh, and didn't want to wear a tie anymore. And so um, left and did accounting at a small hippie store in Harvard Square called uh, Promise Land, if I remember correctly. And while there, a guy, um, another clerk, I was also doing some clerk work there. Uh, another clerk said to me, um, I have a business. My partner hates me. Would you be my partner? That was that was exactly his line, to which I said, "Yeah, that sounds like a great idea." Sure, I'm in. So um, that really kicked off the entrepreneur stuff. We I started a company with him called Retrofit, which was a promotions business, um, and from there it spun into a bunch of other things. But um, yeah, that was it was it was, it was an unintentional path. Let's put it that way. And then what was the aha moment behind Buzz Agent? Which uh, was that your next company after the Retrofit or? Um, 
So retrofit, um, retrofit, we ran for a bit. My, my partner there was not, um, well, let's just say his first partner hated him. Ah. So his second partner didn't like him that much either. He was actually a really nice guy, but he was, it wasn't, we weren't a good partners. Uh, so I bought him out. I'd started another company and then bought him out. Uh, we sold those in 2001 under, uh, certain distress. I mean, the, the dot-com market was crashing. It was like a horrible time, but we did sell them. Um, I spent about nine months kicking around, uh, truly like I never, ever want to run a company again. It was Mm -hmm. such a horrific you know, it was, we, you know, I had partner fights. I had, you know, I had to, I had to fundraise. Everybody said, no, the company almost went out of business. It was just horrible. I, I hated it. And, um, I did some business development for a while. I did a bunch of stuff and no, frankly, no one would hire me. Like they were like, oh, you're an entrepreneur. I'm like, no, I'm really not. I got <laughs> stuck doing this. It was an accident. And, uh, I literally had a light bulb moment. Uh, one day I was re I'd been reading the tipping point and, a lot of Seth Godin work and sort of had this aha, like from the Kessler days uh, where we were basically, you know, uh, building a credit card offer, uh, identifying a customer, putting an address on an envelope, stamping it, sending it out, getting 1% return and, and over and over. And sort of the aha was like this word of mouth thing is really interesting. What if we could build a process like direct marketing where we could identify customers, build an audience, send them free product, and then, and then, for, through a variety of tools, capture how they're generating word of mouth from that product. So that, that was like a, honestly, like a 10 second light bulb moment. Um, I, th- I think I went to my computer and like, I, I had a theory of like bees and hives. And so I t- kept typing URLs in until one, one dot com was available, which was buzz agent. And that was it. That was, that was the beginning. And then how did you get it started as far as getting customers and you know people to participate on the other side? Yeah. So we, um, it was a really hard business. I, I tell a lot of entrepreneurs, um, or, you know, people are starting companies like, you know, I mean, hustle is like the number one game you have to believe and, you know, everything looks like a, you know, success, but, but, you know, it was a 10 year overnight success. Right. So like in this case, um, we were turned down by 200 investors, um, angels, VCs. I mean, I talked to everybody I, I could, um, my family at the time had an intervention. So they, I came home one day and they were like, you know, they were all like sitting around the living room, like my brother, my friends, like, we need you to not do this business. I'm like, what, I, what are you guys talking about? I'm like, anyway. Um, uh, and so, you know, we, it was really fortunate, frankly, if we raised money at that time, we probably would have failed. The stuff mm-hmm. we were talking about putting money into was, was not the right stuff. And so we built, did it the old fashioned way. We, I started knocking on doors of large customers and saying, we have this thing. Do you want, I could get you a thousand people that will talk about your product or service and it's not cheap. It's going to cost you 60, 70 K because you're going to send product. We're going to do all this stuff. And I I probably spent six months knocking on doors. And then this wonderful guy at Penguin Putnam, Rick Pascicello, I went, I had a friend there and they gave me some time. And I remember I'd gotten so desperate. I was like, I will give it away for free. The $60,000 thing, I'll give it away for free. And this, I remember being in a room and Rick leaning forward and going, did you say free? And I'm like, yeah, free. And he was like, we'll do it. And so we did it for a book called The Frog King. Uh, that worked really well. It became a bestseller. We got like signed copies from the guy. And, you know, like you, I, you guys, you know, who knows if it was even us? I can't even tell you if it was us, but we, you know, they were like, it was a bestseller. 
And so that summer, with that in hand, with that one customer that proved value, uh, we had like Anheuser-Busch and Estee Lauder and all these people, all these doors I'd been knocking on and knocking on, knocking on. They sort of all came together, started realizing the power of consumer opinion. And we were the one company that was knocking on their door. So that kicked it off. At what point did you decide to raise capital? So what happened was we built off the backs of customers until we were about $3 million in revenue. And um, so like we were really, we had a real business, like it was, it was happening. Um We'd forgotten if we'd frankly at that stage forgotten all about fundraising. So that's another thing entrepreneurs like they'll they'll fundraise, they'll fail, they'll get a little traction. And the first thing they think of is, okay, time to fundraise again. Right. Like, hey, how about you? Hey, it didn't work out. You figured out how to get traction on your own. You're only at a better um, you know, position the more revenue and the more experience you have if you go fundraise. Like you don't need you're not you're not building the core business so you can fundraise. The reason you fundraise is because you're not really sure how to get to anything that could be of value without a bit of capital behind you. Like, so you're doing it in reverse. Anyway, um, so we spent once we once we uh, you know started getting customers, we'd stop thinking about fundraising. Um, but I had a a guy who I've now done lots of companies with, uh, Guli Arshad, uh, who I'd been spending a bunch of time with post the first companies just as a friend. And he, he, Guli is an amazing, has great instinct. And he saw this thing happening and he said, we should, I'd like to invest. And I was like, oh, I hadn't even been fundraising. And he brought in his friend, Shikar Ghosh, who has also been involved with all our companies. And Shikar and Guli said, we want to put a bunch of money in. And so we raised, I think, 750,000 uh, in, um, let's see, in, I'm going to get this a little wrong, in the fall of 20. 2003. Uh, in December of 2004, we ended up on the cover of the New York Times magazine, uh, totally accidentally, truly, like you couldn't have planned for it, but we were the 8,000 word cover story. And we ended up doing a $10 million round with venture capitalists in the next year. So how did that cover story actually happen? Like, was it luck? Did you have PR firms out there hustling? We weren't even that smart. So this this is another thing I think a lot about, like, how do you recreate this, which I don't think is possible. So we, as I said earlier, like we had been reading a bunch of work that got me into this business, um, a lot of it by Seth Godin. He was always our, like Seth Godin, he's amazing, he's a great marketer. And um, I remember one day Seth emailed us and I think all he wrote, which is so Seth, uh, uh, checking up, checking in, how's it going? Okay, so I remember I was sitting back to back in a tiny room with John O'Toole, uh, who built the company with me. And and John turns around like and he's like, did you get that email from Seth? Go and I'm like, yeah, was that Seth Goat? We're like, oh, my God. So we call Seth. Seth says, I heard about this book you did. I've got a book called Purple Cow. Uh, can you guys work on it? So we said, yes, we ended up doing, I think, a dozen projects with Seth over the years. Um, but. What happened was at some point, Rob Walker, who is a writer for the New York Times, called Seth and said, give me one of the you know, next era of marketing companies. And Seth said, buzz agent. Uh, Rob came up, interviewed us. He, it, he made it. I don't know if he knew or not, but he made it like we're going to do this little article. And then I remember being in a hotel room like a dingy. I don't know why I remember, but it was like really dirty uh, hotel room. <laughs> and being on the phone with Rob uh, and he goes, and it was three days before the article was coming out. And he goes, I need to tell you that this is a cover story. And I'm like, 
uh, okay. Like, I didn't even realize what that meant. I was sort of like, oh, cool. I was like, neat. But he was <laughs> forewarning me because it was about to come like, you know, you got to cover certain New York Times, like crazy stuff happens. Yeah. And uh, I do remember debate. He told me, I was like, oh, the photographer came and took pictures, you know, like prep for the article. Hey, will you put my face on the cover? And and he said to me, he go he go, I mean it was so I was so naive. He goes, that's reserved for really important people. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, okay, all right, sorry. Cool. Anyway, yeah. cool. Yeah, I tried to, I tried to get it done, but it didn't if, if you don't ask, you'll never know. Never know, never know. So we ended up. Um, so it was totally lucky. That's that's the important thing. Like, yeah, you you could probably hire a PR firm and say. I want big press. No PR firm ever could say I can get you to the cover of the New York Times magazine. It just yeah. doesn't happen that way. Right. Yeah. Um, and we were a trend. I mean, we, we, you know, when that came out, um, one of my all time favorite musicians is David Byrne from the talking heads. And I remember he, he wrote about us on his blog, which was like a mind blower. And Neil Stevenson from like, um, he wrote about us, like, I mean, just crazy people. And then I'm like, this is amazing. I'm like, Wow, like we're I'm a known quantity, but um, what, why was David by Byrne way, writing about that, you though? That's interesting. Why was David Byrne writing about you? Dave, so David Byrne, and you know, it's I just looked this up the other night because um, I remember I got in a fight with Jason Calacanis shortly after this came out, which is another funny story about how that went down. But he wrote on his blog about us because we had a conversation that was heated, and he wrote you made it like David Byrne was saying good things about you. And he wasn't you. If you read into his stuff, he wasn't saying positive <laughs> things because at the time there was this big debate about deceptive marketing versus versus above board. And we were very above board, but there were definitely things in the early days of the business where we didn't even know what deceptive was. We just were like, Oh, we didn't know to tell buzz agents that they had to disclose because there was no, we didn't even understand what the model yes, was. New category. Yeah, we didn't know. Like, and it took us a while to learn. So, mm -hmm. David Byrne was sort of saying, like, this is amazing, but like, I would hate to be deceived, right? Which totally, of, of course, me too. Uh, to which Calacanis came at me like a, you know, steam locomotive. Um, you know, like, are you guys deceiving people? No, we, I don't even know what's happening. You know, but anyway, um, that's. The, that's the I'm just a guy trying to build a business. Yeah, that is literally what I said to him. I will. Yeah, I'll. Since maybe Calacanis will listen to this, I'll tell you the story, which is he eventually he, he wrote some nasty stuff about us. This is deceptive, deceptive. Eventually, I get a call. Uh, someone's like, hey, Dave, Dave, J Jason Calacanis is on the phone. I'm like, what? I'm like, oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> I, by the way, recounted the story to Jason about four years ago. And he was like, he was like, no, I always loved you guys. Anyway, this is actually what happened. He got on the phone and he's like, I'm like, dude, you're like ruining my business. What's going on? He's like, hey, what's up? I just, you know, he's like, Jason's a great guy in his way. Yeah. You know, very friendly. He's like, why won't you fight me? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, this is the whole thing. You, I'm going to write some stuff and then you write some stuff back. And uh, then and that gets a lot of attention. And I'm like, it. dude, you are messing with my business. <laughs> it's not he working. Like, he was like, he meant, he really, I mean, I do believe Jason, like, um, I, 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 he was doing it with the best intention. Yeah, his intent was to get more. Right. And he knew that we were, this thing was now bigger, you know, his covering, yeah. you know, he knew a way which he's a genius at how to get profile. Yeah. And I was too oblivious. I mean, I was so worried about the company. I was just oblivious. And All right. So fast forward, the company was acquired by Dun Dunhambi. So 
Okay. Was that like, Oh my God, this, this journey, it finally like all came together and this hard work. Just, um, uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, anytime a company, you know, you're able to, to create value for your shareholders and, uh, you know, help the business become bigger in the context of what it is inside another, another company. That's an amazing feeling. I think, you know, 11 years in, um, we were tired, no question. I mean, the, 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 um, you know, the, the ups and downs of a startup for any startup are really hard. And, uh, you know, as companies mature, they, you know, there's a pace to them. And so probably by about year 10, we started getting pretty tired. I personally was tired. And that guy, Shikar, who I mentioned after I think our 20th board meeting with our venture investors, I came out of the meeting and said, um, I think we, you know, there's like a post meeting without you and then without the CEO and then you go and, and they tell you what they want you to do. So Shikar came in and said, um, how you doing? And I was like, God, oh, that was a great meeting. You know, like that was really fun. And he goes, actually, that was the worst meeting you've ever had. I think it's time to sell the company. And that, and he was right. He saw that we were really, really worn out and we had, we had rescued the, the business had gone through some tough times in in 09 and we had turned it back into a profitable business and it was doing well with a smaller team and we you know went looking and um dunhumby um came along and i had a i really loved working at dunhumby they treated me with with uh you know really well i learned a ton with them so it was it was great we were very happy to to, to allow them to work with the company now in parallel with while you're still at dunhumby you started another company smarter yes yeah so yeah parallel is a is a is an interesting term i mean we you know this is one of those things like be careful, be, be careful what you start. This is probably my, if there's any problem I have, it's that. It's not that when I started, I can't figure out what to do with it. It's that I can get curious and curiosity leads to, for some people, it's just curious. For me, it often leads to development. And when it starts to develop, it becomes real. Like this happened to me again with Flipside and Milestone. Like it just happened. I developed another thing. The other thing was great. In the in the case of Dunhumby, um, and Buzz Agent, uh, I was running Dunhumby, or I was running Dunhumby. Sorry, Simon. Hey, I was not running Dun Dunhumby. <laughs> <laughs> I was running Buzz Agent. I became chair of it inside Dunhumby and um, uh, had this idea to help people assess their skills more effectively. I was so sick of getting resumes with like, uh, you know, excellent at R. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Right? Like right. proficient with Excel. Okay. How proficient. So we, I wanted to come up with a way to give people a proper assessment. Um, started the company with Mike Kowalczyk in 20, oh God, I can't get these right, 2010. Um, eventually, Jen Fremont Smith came in to act as CEO. I became chairman. I realized I was sort of stuck at, at uh, Dunhumby in a wonderful way, but I was, I was there. I wasn't going to go anywhere. So I became chairman. We grew it over um, three years. Jen eventually moved on. I came in as CEO and, um, you know, continue to run the company. And then we exited in um, 2014 to Pluralsight. So how did you transform the business? Because um, from what I remember, it was originally supposed to be this consumer score that tied into your LinkedIn profile, but you evolved it into a meaningful company that had interest from acquirers. Yeah. Um, you know, the story always looks sexier on the outside than on the inside. That's well, these sure. are the stories we need to know. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I guess a couple things, you know, um, we were talking about Sarah Hodges before the, before we started this today. So, so a couple things to know. So one is Sarah at some point during my tenure at, 
uh, as chairman of, of um, Smarter, uh, I'd met Sarah. <clears throat> that was during the tech prom time. I'd met Sarah and thought she was amazing as a as a, like a, a which she is as a operator and asked her to consult at Smarter. Okay, so she came in and consulted. As uh, over then we started dating at some point, and now she's consulting for the business, and I'm chairman. That's fine, but like there, you can imagine some tension with your coworkers, like your girlfriends in the business and your chairman. But like that was that created some tension. Sure. Um, uh, what basically what was happening all along with Smarter, um, and the Sarah part will be important in a second. What's, what what happened all along with Smarter was we had done really well at building an IP that would give the ability for people to create tests out of any subject and others to score on those tests in a way to create validity. Like we'd done a really good job and we had a hundred million test scores taken, but we could never find a place where people would use that. Was it for resumes? Was it for hiring? Like we just couldn't find, we had a couple little glimmers. Um, when I came into the company, um, what was clear about the company was it had this great IP, but like it was, there wasn't a business that we could hold on to. And the thing I needed to do was create like a marching forward vision. It didn't even have to be a great vision. It just had to get everybody on the same page with customers. Okay, so we came up with a way to use the tool um, whereby a company, uh, our clients were GE and Fidelity and uh, H&R Block and Accenture, like real companies, could use it to test a certain department within their organization. Okay, these are the customer service people. They would build a test, test the people, and then when they were hiring, they could put people through the same test and determine if those people had the same skills as the really great employees internally, things like that. So we created that vision. Now, I will tell you that vision was an enterprise vision. It was good. It was not a rocket ship business, but it was really interesting and clear, but it made value out of our, out of our tools. The rub to that is I am now CEO of the company and my girlfriend is in the company. And <laughs> so that was complex. Uh, you know, the team, you know, it was, it was a hard turn. I had to tell her why to change all of her marketing. She didn't like, you know, she, she did not like me telling her what to do. That is for sure. We <laughs> broke up like dozens of times during that era. Um, and the way this sold is, is sort of a, it's now gone down in history for us is we were, we were short on capital. We were about to do a fundraise. We did a board deck and um, I would do board decks with Sarah and um, and we broke up because because she chose the wrong fonts. That's why we broke up. Okay, for sure. Um, <laughs> truly, it was stuff like that. Like, right. why you keep changing to like Trevor Show or whatever, <laughs> like Ariel, you know, or whatever. Anyway, we'd break up. We have this one event every year, this EdTech event that we go to. It was a big conference at a beautiful place, and we'd broken up. And she's the marketer. I'm the CEO. She calls me just before we're not together, but we're supposed to go to this event you know, and stay in the same room and like, it's awkward. And I'm like, well, whatever, get on, get on a plane, do your job. She, she will tell that part of the story where I was such a jerk about it. And uh, when we got to the conference, we spent about 12 hours on a Saturday by the pool debating what to do. We could either stay together and, um, and, you know, we like, like stay together and like go through this pain inside the company or she could, or, or, or we could, you know, we could, the, sorry, I'm getting this backwards. We could either stay together and she would have to leave the company mm -hmm. or we would stay broken up and she could stay. Okay. okay. That was I'm making, now I'm making it clear. Uh, uh, we decided ultimately she was going to leave the company. 
uh, because what, how could we leave this company in the middle of the CEO? Meanwhile, I will tell you for the record, which she should listen to, she was doing almost, she was really leading the company. She is amazing. And so, uh, it was horrible for me. I'm like, she's going to leave. I don't know how to run this company. Like, yeah. So, um, that afternoon we ran into Aaron Skinnard from Pluralsight. Somebody kept telling us to meet him. And that afternoon we sat down and he was like, I really, this, what you're doing is really important. Aaron is an amazing CEO. He's like, what you're doing is really important. And we, I just knew this guy was like really interested in the business. So I said to Sarah, you know, don't, do not leave. Don't tell anyone in the company you're going to leave because who knows what's going to happen. And um, that triggered a whole bunch of events where Pluralsight ended up really getting engaged with the business and bought the company. Um, Sarah, you know, stayed, she became a member of their exec team. Like, like it was, it's a great outcome. So, and then we got married. It was a great outcome for many reasons, including a marriage. But after the acquisition, Pluralsight has become a very meaningful company in the Boston tech scene. Uh, they're growing the team. They've IPO'd. Yeah, it's been great. And it's, I'm so proud. Like Mike Kowalczyk, who built the technology, is amazing. I mean, the guy is, and he's still there. And and um, Bavika, I mean, I could name tons of people who are still there from the core team who are wonderful. And they've really built this amazing um, ecosystem in town. Like if you are, I will just say no BS, like Pluralsight is one of the best companies by far I've ever worked for. Great culture, good, good team morale. I mean, their mission, you know, helping democratize learning. I mean, it's amazing. Like they are, they are hiring. If you are, if you are, uh, you know, if you're thinking about a good job, they're a great place to go. So then on to your next startup, which is a continuous theme here, uh, Milestone. So what triggered that? Like that yeah. was kind of a, a different world. Yeah. Milestone, Milestone is probably one of the greatest learning experiences I've had in the, in the past at least a couple, uh, maybe decade, but also um, an important thing that I couldn't quite figure out how to solve. Um, mm -hmm. What triggered it is I used to fly into LaGuardia once a week, once every other week, and there's a like fields of cemeteries under LaGuardia. And <clears throat> so I, you know, out of boredom, I'd be like looking at them. And I started trying to find a, a visiting, uh, like a, someone, you know, visiting a gravestone. And, you know, first, I mean, these are like, by the way, like tens of thousands of gravestones for anyone who's flown in, you've seen them. Um, after like 10 trips, I couldn't find a single living person in the graveyard. And that got me thinking about like, what's wrong with the way we memorialize the deceased? And is there a better way? And it's true, we live in digital form at this stage. Like everyone's got photos of everybody on their phones and the stories are in their heads. Mm -hmm. And so we set out to build a better way to help people really pay homage and memorialize the deceased. You don't want to go into a graveyard anymore. You want to live with their spirit and feel that, you know, everything about them hasn't, hasn't been lost. Um, so we spent about a year working with funeral homes, helping them. We had a whole bunch of product that we built for that. Um, we realized, I think at the end of the year, we got very tired. We couldn't quite crack the funeral home shell, at, which people had told us before we got into the business. And we ended up stumbling into a business um, which was a really interesting business. We had about a thousand biographers, very buzz agency. We had a thousand biographers who were on call and people could connect their phone photos to our service. And the biographers would go through your photos and then pick out subsets of them. They'd be like, oh, Keith, I see you're in Nantucket. Uh, like, can you tell us about, oh, you're getting a text. You're like, oh, hey, what's up? Oh yeah, I love that picture. Yeah, that was the time I was there with my blah, blah, blah. And you have this conversation and the reason people would do it was really twofold. One, 
they wanted to preserve their story for their future generation. And they realize a lot of people realize like I have a, like my my kids and they don't know anything about all these things that happened in my life. And I'd like to preserve that. Um, I think another was people like to talk about themselves. It was like therapy. You know, it was like so people would pick a random picture out of your photo album and ask you about it. You're like, oh, my God, why did you pick that one? It's like palm reading. Why'd you pick that one? Oh, I don't know. You know, so um, that was working pretty well. And then cryptocurrency showed up right. and, and um, you know, tough. We made some tough choices at the end, but we we decided the cryptocurrency business was was more where we were going to create value and obsession. And and that's what we went after. Perfect segue. So yeah. flip side crypto, um, before you talk about what you actually do with that company, yeah. uh, hypothetically, you're at a dinner party. And you explain to people, I'm at, you know, I'm in the cryptocurrency world and people probably pause and they're like, I kind of heard about this. Tell me, like, how do you explain the world of crypto cryptocurrency and blockchain to someone that is outside of the tech industry? Yeah. Well, the first thing is what most people respond with, uh, um, at least I'm in, I'm in, in the industry I'm in, is, is depends on the price of Bitcoin. So if it's down, they're like, oh, oh God, it must be really miserable. If it's up, they're like, ooh, you know, like, oh, you're having fun? I'm like, okay. It really doesn't have to do with the price of Bitcoin, but that's okay. Um, so the, the thing that caught us on crypto is, is really um, in most, in the history of evolution of uh, industry, there's only really been the evolution of technology, you know, the advent of mobile or uh, the internet. Uh, or the, uh, uh, the evolution or revolution in finance, right? The stock market, things like that. Those, are, those have been like the big boom cycles. Um, never before have technology and finance come together as one, mm -hmm. as, a, as a revolution. And so that's like that in itself is fascinating. Like what could happen if that, if that truly happens? The, the fundamental simplicity of, of what the blockchain is, is a, it's basically a database uh, whereby two parties can talk to each other without any third party sitting in the middle. So think of it like whenever you want to um, get money, you know, if I wanted to send you money, um, I would use my bank. Okay. And I couldn't send money directly to you because my bank does all the processing and they hold my money and all that sort of stuff. What the blockchain does allows you and I to transact directly with each other in a way that nobody can break or, or create fraud out of with no third party, no, no time, no money, no fees, no nothing, just us, okay? And you could imagine that across currency, but you could imagine it across all sorts of things, uh, you know, uh, property, right? Uh, like, you know, my house, your house, things like that. Um, crypto is, is, the, is a form of using the blockchain around currency. You could argue that the way our economic foundation works, um, it is very hard to um, translate our USD into other currencies. There's foreign exchange that has fees. If I want to send money to somebody in some other country, it can take time and, and cost a lot. If I want to transact with you direct here, uh, there's a lot of intermediaries that can tell me what I can and can't do. There's wire fees, there's all sorts of stuff. And so blockchain allows maybe the ability for us to transact and have commerce globally in real time amongst individuals without any third party and that that could change a lot so and once you started thinking about building a business in this category so what what is flipside crypto your latest startup 
Yeah. So, so this started because um, one of the, one of our um, one of our co-founders is this guy Eric Stone, who had built a an old swing trading algorithm for hedge funds before Smarter. And um, Jim, who's the other co-founder with me, technical co-founder, he and I got interested in crypto, and we called Eric and said, "Hey, remember that algorithm you had? Could you ever update it with crypto so we could trade on it personally, just for us, because we were curious and fun." And wanted to have fun. Um, he, uh, Eric nicely, after you know prodding and pushing, after six or eight weeks, he came and gave us the algorithm and said, "I just want you to know, like you can use this, but I would never ever trade on this." Uh, and we're like, "Okay, well, that's weird." And he's like, "But if you built an algorithm that would measure developer behavior on the blockchain, I might trade on that because you'd imagine if developers are building on one of the one of the cryptocurrencies." then that would be a place to invest. Like that's where you'd want, oh, okay, that's it. Hey, Eric, would you mind working with Jim and building that for fun? Yeah, he was interested in crypto. Anyway, they built these algorithms. People started showing up and ask, they heard, people heard about it. And, you know, I'd mention it over lunch or something to someone and they would say, can I give you money? Uh, and I'm like, uh, no, we don't, I'm running another company, no. And then eventually, okay, yeah, you can give me money, we'll invest it. And we had a philosophy about diversified investing in cryptocurrencies, there's now, 1600 cryptocurrencies. So how do you know which, how do you get a diversified minimally correlated basket, all that? Anyway, we built algorithms that would help you get into a set of cryptocurrencies. Um, we built a series of funds that would do that. What's now come out of that is we now have probably the best valuation data around cryptocurrencies. We use models to understand utility of crypto, uh, that developer behavior. We understand market maturity, which assets will actually perform well based on multiple types of trading strategies. Like we, we have all sorts of algorithms. And so if you're a financial institution who's trying to bring a product to market around crypto, you need good data. You need to know what you should tell your customers. I wanna offer a mutual fund-like offering uh, around crypto. Well, I don't know which ones to even put in there or what data to put in there. So our tools help people now understand how to build those products. Okay. So if you think of a mutual fund, right? Like people, you know, high net worth individuals own mutual funds, people yep. that are you know, just starting investing, a mutual fund is probably a good idea. I would think it would be the same thing in cryptocurrency because one, how do you get started, right? That's something that even to me is like a mystery. Like, so do you actually go to one of these exchanges and just buy one Bitcoin, right? Like I haven't done that yet. And how does that happen? Whereas I could use your platform instead and diversify and own a portfolio of cryptocurrency that right. could include Bitcoin or any other form. That's right. So our, our core crypto index now has 28 assets in it. It's a minimally correlated diversified portfolio tracks uh, the market basically. So there is some Bitcoin and Ethereum in there, which are the two sort of big heavy hitters but there's lots of other assets across multiple use cases uh, to give you exposure to the broader market. We do all the work, we have dashboards, there's education, uh, and yes, it's for high net worth accredited investors, um, but we power other vehicles that you know might be for other types of investors. Um, and that's really, so if you think about our business, we have our sort of consumer facing, what, a, what an investor might call us and say, can I get into your funds? And then we really have the B2B side where we're helping use the data to power these other tools. That's that we think is a very, very big market for the future. And one of your, your latest offerings is daily crypto basket. So is that different than what we just talked about or is that 
So that's that's the last um, tool. It's sort of an in-between puzzle, which is we built a variety of algorithm and algorithms, which we know, and then we built a variety of tools to let us um, use those algorithms to build baskets, to build indexes of, of cryptocurrencies. And so we had this idea, we're like, wait a second, um, I can put any variable in. I want to build a basket out of a out of privacy coins or decentralized exchanges or or maybe out of only things that have a certain trading volume or or a certain type of what's called consensus mechanism, all these things. And we can like, based on how amazing my co-founders are, we can like click a button and it will produce the index and then it will produce all sorts of metrics with it. Back testing, correlation, volatility versus Bitcoin, volatility versus the S&P, all that stuff. And so we were like, huh, uh, that's interesting. Let's, let's, I don't know, let's make a website and build a basket a day of all different themes and we'll let people buy into them. They're, you know, like that would be cool. And it was partly to test our system. Like, can we build the basket every day? Can we, then can we service it? Can I, you know, people show up today. Can I buy every day? I need to get my operations strong enough so that if I ever license my tools to a very large institution, we can service it at scale. What it's turned into is a, is a very deep understanding of what types of baskets and indexes uh, people want, what types of information they need in order to buy. And that's pretty powerful. So um, I suppose to the user, it's a great way to get a diversified set of crypto based on themes. And it's fun. It's learning. You get to learn a little bit every day about types of baskets. Uh, for us, we're learning a ton about what types of data helps customers determine what they should buy and things like that. Well, something else that you're known for is um, your activity as an investor, whether it's on the institutional side, corporate M&A. But I guess at the beginning of it all was starting out angel investing, which I think Boston's come so far on. Like that was such a major pain point years and years ago, uh, access to early stage capital through angels. Yep. But uh, so how did you get started doing that? Um, you know, I, I <laughs> to be honest, it was out of fear. Um, um, my first... Uh, my first two investments, um, one was in Runkeeper. Uh, Which, how, did, how did that happen? Well, Jay, I was giving free space at BuzzAgent to startups. It was in like 2008, 2009. It was a tough era. And so I was like, people, it's hard to start companies. So I just, I had empty space. So I was like, go ahead. You can have free space. Jason showed up back there. And if, for those who've met Jason, you know, he's like, he's like a whirlwind. It's, it's hard to not like it. In, once you're in his orbit, it's hard to not like it, you know, entrapped. So he, I think he asked, I can't remember, but I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, you know, I've never, okay, yes, I'll invest. That was number one. And then number two, I'd agreed to mentor at Techstars, at not even really knowing when that man I'd show up and they'd be, you know, some entrepreneur would be like, what do you think of this? And I'd pontificate. And then out of all the entrepreneurs I met, nobody asked, Ben Carcio from Promobox is like, so will you invest? And I'm like, uh, Yes. Like I didn't, I was so afraid to say, no, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So that's how I started. I invested in the two of them. Um, uh, I probably done maybe 75 angel investments since wow. I've, slowed, I've slowed in the past year or so. I, I feel like I've done what I do there. Um, I'm, I've done pretty well, frankly, but um, it's a lot of work. And, and I think, I also think for entrepreneurs, there are lots of ways to raise capital now. Um, the angel sort of model is different and, you know, we, I, you know, they should, people should, you know, you can get angel like money, quote unquote, from great seed funds now, like Boston seed and, you know, places like that. And, and why do you keep building companies? Like it's just this common theme where 
you know, it just seems like you keep doing it over and over again. And, you know, it just, like, do you just have this constant need to, to build something new? Um, the why is a, is a, is a hard one. Uh, I, I tell people this and it sounds weird. I, I, when an idea comes, it is very hard for me to, um, it's like, an, it sounds really scary. It's like a noise in my head. Uh, it like it, I can't avoid it. It's everywhere around me. I'll see it. Like when talking to people, I'll hear something about it. I'm just like in it. And if I don't scratch the itch, it becomes like overwhelming. I don't, I don't, it's like, it's hard to explain, but so I, I tend to, you know, and if I get curious enough about an idea, um, I want to see it happen. And I, you know, I'll hear this, I'll hear the noises or see the patterns over and over and just, it, it starts to happen. I, I am, um, you know, I love for, for whatever. I love doing it. I mean, it's like, what more fun can you have? You have, you get to work with great talent. You're building something out of nothing. It's creative. Uh, you can, you can, you know, uh, turn into something that creates value for customers. Like, I don't know what, why would you do anything else? Like, let's do this. This is fun. And how do you decipher between the ideas that just pop in your head? That's like, wow, that's interesting to the ones that you think could have some long-term value to actually build a company around. Cause I'm sure ideas yeah come into your head a lot. Oh, yeah. Most of it is, it's just time. Like, like I'll have lots of ideas if it keeps coming up again and again, right? It's that noise quotient like good ideas will, won't go away, you know, like, um, so, you know, I've had plenty of ideas that like, if I probably thought back and be like, oh yeah, I was thinking about that for a bit. And I just, I eventually got bored of it. Like if it, you know, if, if you're not seeing it and you get bored of it, it's probably not a good enough idea. So like, um, you know, flip side's a bit different. Flip side was organic curiosity. I wasn't consciously trying to build a company. Uh, so it wasn't like I saw a noise. I was just so curious about crypto uh, that, you know, one thing led to another. So, um, but consciously I would tell people like, if you get an idea, um, you know, let it sit, you know, like see if it keeps, if you wake, if you wake up in the morning and like, oh, why am I thinking about that again? Or you know, you're talking to a friend and they start talking about something in the space. If you just keep trying to get them to talk about the thing you're interested in, then it's probably real. It's all about obsession. It's probably real enough to do something with. Is there any idea that's just top of mind constantly of the one, it was an idea you had that you didn't pursue and you look and you're like, a company has done it and scaled? <laughs> um, lots of ideas. Sure. I mean, I mean, uh, you could argue buzz agent was Facebook in, in, in the worst possible way, we missed it. Mm -hmm. Right. We had, I mean, Facebook came into our office in 04 and when they left, I, I won't tell the whole story, but when they left, we laughed. I remember as a team laughing cause they had, we had, I think we had 300,000 buzz agents and like 8 million in revenue and they had 30,000 people and no revenue. And we we're like, they're idiots. They don't, they don't know what's going on. Like we have a real business. I mean, we just didn't, we, we knew enough to corral people and get them together. We just were applying it in a way that we, that was, you know, less, less powerful than certainly what Facebook built. Um, yeah, there's a lot, I mean, they got, you know, lots of ideas. My ideas tend to be a little quirky. So, you know, most of them probably don't get to see the light of day without, without, uh, without someone crazy behind them. Absolutely. Well, Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to share all your words of wisdom and all the great stories. Appreciate it. And I don't know, maybe, uh, Dave Balter Tech Prom needs to make a, uh, a comeback. <laughs> Sign the petition now. We'll put it. We'll put it online. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Keith. This was awesome. All right. Thanks again for your time. Yeah. 
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.